There were many very intelligent people that were reeled in by Nexium. Their indoctrination, their breaking down, their, their changing, this process of coercive persuasion went on for years. Today is Friday, March 12th. The year is 2021. This is No Easy Answers, and I am your host, Jules Taylor. Today, like all days, I have no easy answers for you. Well, thank you for tuning in from wherever you happen to be listening. My name is Jules Taylor. This is No Easy Answers, and I am delighted to have you with us for today's episode. Before we get started, I just want to send a very special thank you to our guest, Dr. Rick Allen Ross. Rick Ross is a cult deprogrammer and the founder of the nonprofit Cult Education Institute. He frequently appears in the news and other media discussing groups considered to be cults, and he has intervened in more than 500 deprogramming cases in various countries. He is the author of the book Cults Inside Out, How People Get In and Can't Get Out. He has a PhD in psychology, and he's worked with members of the Branch Davidians and Nexium, and he is an absolute perfect guest for our discussion today. So just some general housekeeping before we get to all of that. No Easy Answers is a podcast about politics, philosophy, and the human condition. We are entirely listener-supported, so if you like what we do and you want to support the show, you can really help us out by leaving us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. And if you want to leave a few positive words while you're there, that really helps us expand our reach. You can also support us by following us on Twitter, sharing these episodes with your family and friends, or sharing our episodes on your social media. And if you have a few spare dollars lying around, I know times are hard out there and not many people do, but if you are one of those few people that are lucky and privileged enough to have a few dollars set aside and you want to help support the show and all of the research, writing, guests, and other labor that goes into producing these episodes, you can subscribe to our Patreon for as little as $3 a month. And thank you to all of our loyal listeners out there who tune in every time there's a new episode published. And my promise to you is that to the best of my abilities, I will consistently release content that is worthy of your time, worthy of your attention, and I promise the content will always be enriching and hopefully leave you with something that you can take away from it that will enhance your way of being in the world. And I don't want this to be a one-sided conversation, so if you check out the show notes, there are now links to all sorts of ways that you can join the conversation for free. I mean, there's the No Easy Answers Reddit page, there's the No Easy Answers Discord, you can chime in on the Patreon because none of our stuff is behind a paywall. You can ping me or the show on social media. Twitter seems to be where we are most active these days. And you can always send us a voice message or send us an email, noeasyanswerspodcast at gmail. So let's get on to the show, and I've prefaced this with a bit of a monologue. Then we'll go into the introduction, and we'll start doing that now. So I'm a fairly smart person, and you, because you're listening to this show, I'm a little biased here, but you are a very smart listener, and we are both rational, sane, and sound-minded individuals. So you and me, you know, we're just not the type of person who would join a cult. I mean, sure, we've all made some poor decisions in the past. I mean, we're only human. We've done things that 
when we look back on, we're just not too proud of, and we don't always make the best decisions as we go through our daily lives. Still though, I mean, we understand that everyone makes mistakes from time to time, but the mistakes that you and I make, well, they're just not as severe as, you know, joining a cult. I mean, I think you're more likely to find me committing any number of mistakes, some of which no doubt would be egregious and unforced errors. But moving to Guyana and drinking the Kool-Aid, well, that's just not the type of mistake that I tend to make. I mean, fair enough, right? I mean, but did you know there were 918 people who were part of the People's Temple who did drink the Kool-Aid that day? Out of those 918 people that perished, I mean, how many of them would have ever thought they would be the type of person to join a cult? I'm sure many of them would have, just like you and me, thought themselves to be rational, sane, and sound-minded individuals. I mean, it's not as if destructive cults represent themselves truthfully to prospective new members. Cults would not be effective at recruiting if they said from the start, you know, our organization has an absolute authoritarian leader with no meaningful accountability who uses coercive persuasion and thought reform techniques and ultimately inflicts financial, psychological, and bodily harm to our members. I mean, the reality is, is that cults have a pernicious and insidious way of operating, and in many cases, cult members are unaware as to the gravity of their situation until significant harm or suffering has been rendered. So perhaps, my dear listeners, just maybe you and I are too smart to join a cult after all. Maybe we are all too smart to join a cult because, and I want us to try this on for a minute, perhaps whether one does join a cult or does not join a cult has nothing to do with how smart a person is. Perhaps we are all susceptible more than we would like to admit, and more than we are comfortable with acknowledging. So now that I have alerted you to this vulnerability you may or may not have already been aware of, let me explain to you a little more about what I mean about susceptibility. Remember back before the coronavirus drastically reshaped all of our lives? When you could go to the supermarket and there would be a person giving out free samples of cheese? You know the always smiling attendant that I'm speaking of, with the cheese slices and the toothpicks and the cocktail napkins and single serving plastic containers. You know, as a marketing technique, the free sample has a long and effective history. And certainly there is a desire for the cheese manufacturer to expose their product to potential customers. But the beauty of the free sample is that it's also a gift. And the promoter who gives away free samples can release a natural indebting force inherent to gifts while innocently appearing to only have the intention to inform. Many folks find it difficult to accept a sample, return only the toothpick, and walk away. I mean, instead, they buy some version of the product, and they do that even if they did not like the product especially well. Dr. Robert Cialdini, in his book, Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion, he writes eloquently on what he calls the rule for reciprocity, and how deeply implanted within us the rule for reciprocity is by the process of socialization that we all undergo. He cites archaeologist Richard Leakey ascribing the rule for reciprocity into the essence of what makes us human. Quote, we are human because our ancestors learned to share their food and their skills in an honored network of obligation. I'm going to paraphrase some of Cialdini's book here. Anthropologists view this web of indebtedness as a unique adaptive mechanism of human beings, allowing for the division of labor, the exchange of diverse forms of goods, the exchange of different services, making it possible for experts to develop, and the creation of a cluster of interdependencies that bind individuals together into highly efficient units. A widely shared and strongly held feeling of future obligation made an enormous difference in human social evolution, because it meant that one person could give something, for example, food, energy, or care, 
to another person with confidence that it was not being lost. I mean, for the first time in evolutionary history, one individual could give away a variety of resources without actually giving them away. The result was the lowering of natural inhibitions against transactions that must be begun by one person providing personal resources to another. Sophisticated, coordinated systems of aid, gift-giving, defense, and trade became possible, bringing immense benefit to the societies that possess them. Human societies derive a truly significant competitive advantage from the reciprocity rule, and consequently they make sure their members are trained to comply with it and believe in it. Each of us has been taught to live up to the rule, and each of us knows about the social sanctions and derision applied to anyone who violates it. The labels we assign to such a person are loaded with negativity. You know, we call them a moocher, an ingrate, a welsher. Because there is a general distaste for those who take and make no effort to give in return, we will often go to great lengths to avoid being considered a moocher or an ingrate, etc. It is to those lengths that we will often be taken in and in the process be taken by individuals who stand to gain from our indebtedness. So back to the always smiling attendant who offered you the cheese you didn't particularly like and the reason you've now purchased two blocks of cheese that you didn't want, need, or ask for. The motives of the supermarket and the attendant and the cheese manufacturer, their motivations aren't something I'd say are dishonorable. But consider a different example, one you may have heard about or encountered, and one that's relevant to this conversation. The International Society for Krishna Consciousness, or better known as the Hare Krishna Movement. Now, for those of us who don't sit around and research cults in our free time, a great resource for information about cults is culteducation.com, which is the largest online public database and archive for information about destructive cults. They have plenty of information on the Hare Krishna movement, and the founder of culteducation.com will be joining us in just a bit for our guest interview. So the Hare Krishna movement, I bring them up to tell you that as a method of soliciting funds, they use a similar tactic to the free cheese sample, and the whole approach of using a free sample, that's actually referred to as the benefactor before beggar approach. But the Krishna member, you know, they usually start this process by giving a target person a gift. I say that gift in air quotes. And that gift is usually a book or, in the most cost-effective case, a flower. They usually choose a place with a lot of pedestrian traffic in which to do this. So the unsuspecting passerby who suddenly finds a flower pressed into his or her hands or pinned to his or her jacket or a book in their hands, is more likely, you know, they're going to be caught off guard. Even if the target asserts that, you know, they don't want the gift, under no circumstances are they allowed to give it back. No, this gift is for you, says the solicitor, refusing to accept it. It's only after the Krishna member has thus brought the full force of the reciprocity rule to bear on the situation is the target asked to provide a contribution to the society. And of course, we can see the success of this approach in the funding of their many temples, businesses, houses, and property in their many centers in the United States and overseas. So these same tactics that are used in sales, which ultimately have their root in psychology, are also at work in cult recruitment. And part of the susceptibility I'm trying to bring forth by these examples is the slight difference in conditions that allow us to say yes, as opposed to the conditions that would have us say no. This indebtedness is small, and yet it's so effective, and we probably all have something equivalent to unwanted magazine subscriptions or raffle tickets we didn't especially wish to purchase. You know, the powers of persuasion, be they propaganda, appeals to authority, societal norms and expectations, advertisements, celebrity endorsements, cultural influence, and social proof, 
Those powers are at work all around us, and we employ them and we fall victim to them, to some degree, in our daily interactions with friends, families, and neighbors. I mean, these are the same tactics used by sales and marketing specialists, and of course, this is how destructive cults can persuade you to do some awful things. So I think it's important to understand, and it's also something I took from my conversation with our guest, that falling into a cult is not something someone does by a leap. Because joining a cult is a process, it's not an event, in that it occurs slowly, drip by drip, one teaspoon at a time. And so if we can recognize that people who fall prey to destructive cults did not end up there due to a bad choice they made, and that we are also susceptible to those very same elements which cause them to fall prey, that can help us in the days ahead. I mean, it's not a revelation that grifters, bad actors, and swindlers are willing to leverage these deeply rooted psychological aspects of our humanity. But it's also worth noting that these same dishonorably intentioned folks similarly attempt to leverage spirituality to achieve their end goals. I mean, in this case, I'm not pointing to the overly spiritual insular communities like, you know, the Southern Baptist Church or the People's Temple or even the Unification Church or the Hare Krishna movement. I'm speaking more to the vaguely spiritual, power of positive thinking, law of attraction, self-improvement, motivational speakers that have popped up everywhere since the human potential movement took shape in the 1960s. This particular brand of esotericism merges the influences of capitalism and aspects of the New Thought spiritual movement. I mean, the, the New Thought spiritual movement can be traced back to a man named Phineas Parkhurst Quimbley in the mid-19th century. It's said that Phineas, if I'm even pronouncing that correctly, he was diagnosed with tuberculosis when he was a child, which was a disease that had no cure. He began wrestling with his own ideas for a cure, and he found that intense excitement, such as galloping on his horse, because that's what you did in the mid-19th century, that alleviated his pain for brief periods of time, and from there he became interested in the mind's ability to affect the body. He claimed to have cured himself of tuberculosis by his methods, and some of Phineas's methods were later adopted by John Alexander Dowie, who was a guy who revolutionized Christian faith healing in the 1880s. And, you know, today, the New Thought movement is comprised by a loosely allied group of religious denominations, authors, philosophers, and individuals who share a set of metaphysical beliefs like the law of attraction, positive thinking, healing, life force, creative visualization, and personal power. And I mean, if some of this sounds familiar to you, it's because a lot of these ideas are mainstream. I mean, consider Marianne Williamson, a former Democratic presidential candidate. I'm not saying that she's a cult leader, but she is clearly a character with feet firmly planted in the New Thought movement. I mean, a quick background on her taken from her Wikipedia page tells us that she credits a book called A Course in Miracles for changing her life. This is a book written in 1976 by Helen Shookman, an American clinical psychologist, who claimed that the book had been dictated to her word for word via, quote, inner dictation from Christ himself. <laughs> a Course in Miracles has been described as a religious work or a pseudo-religion to which Williamson disagrees. I mean, here's a quote from her. A Course in Miracles is a self-study program in spiritual psychotherapy. It is a book that is based on universal spiritual themes. It is not a religion. It does not claim any kind of monopoly on truth. It has no dogma. It has no doctrine. It talks about love and forgiveness. And I think many people who are students of A Course in Miracles come from all religions or even no religion. This book says nothing about Jesus. The book does not get us to try and believe in God. 
The book tries to get us to believe in each other. End quote. Williamson's teachings stem from an inspirational message that divine love is at the core and essence of every human mind. Her style was called a trendy amalgam of Christianity, Buddhism, pop psychology, and 12-step recovery wisdom. And she was known as a spiritual advisor to Oprah Winfrey. So, I'm not trying to attack Marianne Williamson here. I don't know her intentions, and like I said, I don't think that she's a cult leader. I'm simply pointing to the way that these ideas from the New Thought movement are more commonly held notions than perhaps we've noticed. I mean, forget about Marianne Williamson for a second and just consider your everyday liberal you might see at Starbucks. I mean, this person just came from the gym or just got done with their yoga class. This person prefers organic cheese doodles over the bright orange package for a variety of reasons. This person cares about the environment. They recycle. They have probably tried a vegetarian or vegan diet at some point in their life. I mean, this person is, for all intents and purposes, a rational, sane, and sound-minded individual. But consider some of the New Age spiritual core beliefs. 1. God or infinite intelligence is supreme, universal, and everlasting. 2. Divinity dwells within each person, and all people are spiritual beings. 3. The highest spiritual principle is loving one another unconditionally and teaching and healing one another. And 4. Our mental states are carried forward into manifestation that becomes our experience in daily living. Now, do those, like, four core tenets, do they sound like anyone that you know? Maybe someone who describes himself as, you know, spiritual, but not religious, perhaps. I mean, these days, everyone is a Buddhist or everyone's a Stoic. I mean, they might have read a little bit of Eckhart Tolle or the Four Agreements. Maybe they believe in love languages or they own a copy of... Rich Dad, Poor Dad, or Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. I'm not sure what to call this type of spirituality. I've heard it referred to as the religion of the heart in this, you know, extremely personalized and custom set of beliefs. I tend to think of it as a selective syncretism or an amalgamation or attempted amalgamation of different religions, almost like a cafeteria belief system where, you know, you take the yoga out of the Hindu tradition, you take the act of praying from the Abrahamic religious traditions, and you leave out the aspects of these traditions that do not work for you for whatever reason. Well, maybe the most prominent example of this new age, new thought, spiritual capitalism concept that listeners might be already familiar with or have heard about is the 2006 film, The Secret. Now, I found this film available on YouTube, but to be clear, I am not recommending listeners go and watch this thing. I mean, when I mentioned before you know, about a loosely allied group of authors and philosophers. I mean, this film, The Secret, in the first few minutes, features a handful of these characters, like Bob Proctor, who is a self-help author who identifies as a philosopher, or Joseph Vitale, who is a spiritual teacher and the author of The Attractor Factor, Ellie Davidson, who is a motivational speaker. I mean, The Secret, as a film, makes a claim to a metaphysical truth that in order to accumulate wealth and abundance, one must realize they already have wealth and abundance to the degree that we allow them in our lives already. I mean, in order to increase our wealth and abundance, we must expand our levels of openness and deservingness, and we can have more wealth and abundance right now. 
It would have us believe that, you know, grateful people earn more money. They actually say that. Grateful people earn more money and are better at innovation. I mean, one of the co-authors of the Chicken Soup for the Soul series of books makes an appearance in the film, and he insists that before Chicken Soup for the Soul was a success, he visualized several copies of the book in bookstore windows, and he placed vision boards up around his office. I mean... This stuff is straight out of the New Age spiritual playbook, only unlike a religion which would offer, you know, salvation or a place in heaven beside your creator, it offers wealth accumulation and prosperity. And that is why I sometimes refer to all of this as a sort of capitalist spiritualism. As I began researching and preparing for this episode in our interview, I watched a documentary about the Nexium cult called Seduced. Our guest, who will join us in just a moment, was featured in that documentary as he actually worked to deprogram some of Nexium's members. And for listeners who haven't seen that film, that is a film I would recommend if you're interested in taking in some real-life accounts of cult indoctrination. So, as I was watching the documentary, I started to pick up on some parallels between Nexium and a program that I had took part in about 10 years ago. So Nexium, you know, it was set up as a series of courses for personal development. The people who attended these courses thought they would be taking part in personal growth exercises, but in reality, the coursework was really the entry point of a sex trafficking operation ran by the cult leader Keith Raniere. After the first course is completed, there's a graduation ceremony, and then followed by a hard sales push to get you to sign up for the next course, and of course the courses never stop. It's a multi-level marketing scheme, and the group encourages you to recruit people in your own social circle as a way of gaining new members. Now all of this, like I said, it seemed very familiar, or at least taking some inspiration from a program that I attended called The Forum as part of Landmark Education Courses. And of course, Landmark Education, The Forum, and the founder, Werner Erhard, they're not the inventors of a paid coursework styling of multi-level marketing. They didn't invent what psychologists call large group awareness trainings, or LGADs for short. Although I believe the inspiration for people like Werner Erhard and Keith Raniere, at least in the architecture of their grifts, I think that comes from Scientology and its inventor L. Ron Hubbard. Now, I'll read you something from the website for Landmark Education. Quote, The Landmark Forum is designed to bring about positive, permanent shifts in the quality of your life in just three days. These shifts are the direct cause for a new and unique kind of freedom and power. The freedom to be at ease and the power to be effective in the areas of your life that matter most to you. The quality of your relationships, the confidence with which you live your life, your personal productivity, your experience of the difference you make, and your enjoyment of life. Now, does that sound like an organization with an absolute authoritarian leader with no meaningful accountability who uses thought reform techniques and coercive persuasion that ultimately inflicts psychological, financial, or bodily harm on its members? No, it sounds like the folks at Landmark are making a claim to a metaphysical toolset, some kind of esoteric bag of tricks that if only you had or knew how to use, could result in better personal relationships, better personal productivity, and increase overall satisfaction, and that's something that applies to all of us. So as you'll hear in our conversation, part of the deprogramming process or recovery from cult indoctrination is understanding the tactics, tricks, and methods used by cults to affect the conditions that would normally have us say no and make those conditions something that would allow us to say yes. So, Dr. Ross, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us today. 
Well, thanks, Jules, for having me on. And and basically, uh, you know, I do think that the word cult is being abused and used uh, really just for anything and everything. And of course, there's a range of meaning for the word cult. For example, you could be talking about a cult following, like the fans of uh, Led Zeppelin used to be called deadheads. Excuse me, the the Grateful Dead right, used right. to be called Deadheads, and then they started following another group called The Fish. And and you can be a fan of like a television series like Star Trek, and you could say that has a cult following in the Trekkies. Uh, and, and you could also uh, describe cult branding. For example, uh, there's a cult following for Apple computers. You know, people right. like Apple products, and they, they're kind of a cult following. And there's such a thing as cult branding. But when we specifically use the word cult in the terms of a group and a leader, we're talking about a destructive cult. And there are three core characteristics that form the nucleus for a definition of a destructive cult. And they are, number one, and this is the single most salient feature, is that you have an absolute totalitarian leader uh, who dictates over the group and becomes an object of worship, is the defining element and driving force of the group. And, And that leader basically has the last word on everything. What is right? What is wrong? What is of value? What is worthless? Uh, who has a right to exist. And then second, you have uh, a process of indoctrination, very intense indoctrination that has often been labeled brainwashing, where people are subjected to coercive persuasion and thought reform techniques, and they they in large part lose their ind- independent thinking and critical uh, thinking ability. And they become dependent upon the leader to think for them and make value judgments for them. And the leader gains undue influence over his or her followers. And then finally, if the group is a destructive cult, the leader uses the influence he or she has to exploit the members. And that varies by degree from group to group. Some groups are much worse than others. You have Charlie Manson weaponizing his followers and killing people. You have Jim Jones in 1978 commanding a mass suicide where almost a thousand people died. And then you have, you know, a little bit more sundry and typical groups where they're exploiting members for money Uh, free labor that they make money off of, sexual favors, and they're hurting people by isolating them, breaking them away from their families, their old friends, and and causing, you know, emotional distress and psychological damage. So those three characteristics, the all-powerful leader, the intense indoctrination process to gain undue influence, and the destructiveness of the group, that does harm to its members, and maybe even society externally, that defines, that denotes a destructive cult. Great. Yeah. I mean, that, so I wonder, you know, with things like QAnon, right, they're kind of, in a way, violating that first principle, and yet I think we still think of them as a cult, right? And uh, obviously they do harm to their members, and, uh, but there doesn't seem to be like a monetary drift out of that organization, 
Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, possibly there is. I mean, in terms of Trump support, Trump merchandise, things to that end, right? Um, so I wonder, is like the terrain shifting a little bit to you as far as what qualifies as a destructive cult um, it, it, with new online movements and things where physical presence isn't uh, required? Uh, that is the biggest shift, is that you can have a cult, you can recruit people, you can retain them, you can uh, bilk them through PayPal online or some other means of getting money online. And you can basically never meet your followers and and create a cult online. And this is an uh, increasing phenomenon. It's been uh, growing and growing in the last few years. I think QAnon is one example. And I would, in my opinion, label QAnon as a destructive cult. We don't know who Q is. But Q is an object of worship. Q is the defining element of QAnon. And the members are waiting for the next Q drop and, and, you know, the next spin uh, explaining why the latest prediction didn't come true. And, of course, QAnon has caused devastating damage to members, socially isolating them, breaking up marriages, families, uh, children being estranged from adult parents. I mean, we're hearing all, all about these people and how they've been damaged. By, by QAnon. And of course, on January 6th, we saw the awful spectacle of QAnon members trashing the capital of the United States, something that's never happened in my lifetime and, and never happened before in the history of our country, that people would go into the capital and trash the buildings that denote our democracy and, our, and define our, our country in large part. Uh, it was a, that was just a horrible event, but but I think a lot of the people that were there uh, were in a kind of cult like uh, stasis of of you know intense indoctrination and and willingness to accept a reality that had been concocted uh, by QAnon and by other groups and shepherded by Donald Trump, who who I. I don't regard as a cult leader because he's democratically elected and subject to being voted out of office and also the checks and balances of government, including the courts uh, and the Congress. So I don't see Trump as really being a cult leader and his followers. Maybe they're kind of a fan following uh, in in the sense of uh, Trekkies or, or Grateful Dead fans, but uh, really, I see him more as uh, someone who the people that follow him, uh, that that vote for him and support him, see as a vessel that contains their their view of the world, their orientation to to our current situation in our country. And rather rather than being a cult leader, he's more of a marketing guy, a salesman who identified the the core sentiments of the Republican base and embraced it, uh, articulated it in such a way that everyone supported him. Right. And I, you know, I think we saw when uh, when Biden was inaugurated on the 20th, uh, some of the QAnon believers out there, uh, or at least on some videos that I've linked to in previous episodes, uh, when we discussed the psychological sort of breaking point that's that we're watching happening with their affected members. Um, I mean, they're going through some intense psychological pain. And um, 
I mean, I get the feeling like a lot of people aren't willing to give up on their family members and are trying to develop a dialogue, but they're unsure how, and they certainly probably don't want to engage them around these types of conversations, around huge drops or conspiratorial thinking. Um, so I, in your you know capacity as a therapist, psychologist, and your qualifications, is are these points where the predictions of Q break from being fulfilled, like, are these ripe for developing a dialogue are these proper points to go about it or is there maybe vulnerability there that's too much to step around or or how would you suggest possibly going about a dialogue uh for those of us who have family members that we're trying to help jules let me first point out i'm not a mental health professional not a therapist not a psychologist and when i do interventions it's an educational approach as opposed to a counseling approach so you basically share information with the individual which would include the tricks of the trade what how does coercive persuasion and thought reform work number two what about the group uh do you not know that you were maybe even deceived about that you should know to make a more informed decision about continuing with the group number three is this a destructive authoritarian group that might be called a cult what are the uh, core characteristics and how might they be uh, visible in the particular group that you're involved in. And then finally, why is your family so worried about you? Why are people uh, staging this intervention? Because uh, they apparently see something that distresses them. What is it? And the family, of course, is present at all times during the intervention, and then they offer their perspectives. Uh, but I would say the key is uh you know, not being confrontational, not being negative, not being critical. Don't uh, get in in the face of your family member or or your friend and say something like, well, you're in some kind of crazy cult. You're right. brainwashed. I mean, if you do that, you're just completely cutting the communication, probably, because they're going to get on their smartphone. They're going to pop their uh, notebook open and their or their laptop yeah. and they're going to be online and they're going to be with other people that are part of this movement and they're all going to be reinforcing each other and they're going to say things like well cut that fool off he's right. uh, he or she is part of the part of the problem and uh, wh- why are you wasting your time communicating with them so you want to keep the line of communication going and you want to be sympathetic. And as these Q, Q drops and these predictions, these prophecies that Q is 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 uh, postulating or whatever, uh, they fail, then you can maybe say something to the effect of, is there anything you want to talk about? Um, is there something that, you know, we can kick around? I mean, I heard about uh that march 4th was supposed to be a big day uh how do you feel about it i mean you can you can do that but if they come back and they say what are you trying to say that i'm some kind of crazy group or no no hey uh bro all i'm trying to say is that (laughs) i care about you and and i just am here for you and that's about it you don't get into a negative thing and then as they may begin to come out of it in kind of dazed and confused you might you might suggest a book to them you know like cults inside out possibly (laughs) or or you might suggest another book that deals with uh, conspiracy theories and 
and, and that type of thing. But I think mainly you're just being a really good listener and being very sympathetic and saying, hey, you know, it must be rough and I, I, I'm here for you. And hey, let's sure. just, you know, let's go out for lunch. Let's hang out. Let's watch a movie, you know, whatever. You just want to be there for them and keep the line of communication going. Awesome. I mean, certainly your work probably has had to, you know, in some capacity change in that, like this cult is available, as you mentioned, like it's in your, it's in your pockets on your cell phone, you oh, know, and, and, and maybe the bedrock of, uh, of deprogramming isn't like just removal from the, the cult or removal of their, of physical removal rather. Um, have you had any sort of recent work that you've done where you've had to maybe confront that, uh, that sort of central obstacle of like this stuff is everywhere. The stuff is on their cell phones. And I, I don't know how you would even begin to make progress on deprogramming someone where it's so readily available. Well, the first thing Jules is I say, okay, everybody let's unplug. We're oh, going to wow. unplug. We're yeah. all going to power down all electronic devices, all phones go in the basket. Wow. You know, we're, we're, we've shut down the router. Uh, we are offline. And we're going to deal with each other as people, and we're going to talk about what it is that everyone is concerned about, and, and we're not going to divert and go offline. I, I mean, online. Right, right. And the other, the other thing is, is that you, uh, you're going to say to that person, look, you have been online with these people, and you've been involved with them for hours and hours a day for how many months, maybe a year, two years? Okay, so let's take a break. We're going to yeah. take a break for a long weekend. All right. It's going to be like three, four days, maybe at the most, or maybe just two or three days. Can you handle that? Can can we do that? Because we want to be focused. We want to talk to each other. We don't want to be uh, uh, have our attention uh, on our smartphones and 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 on our laptop screen we want to really look at each other and deal with each other and talk about what the problems are if if there are any right i mean maybe one of the most striking things to me man when i you know was watching some of these documentaries you've been featured in was that i mean these are people from all walks of life that are wow. being indoctrinated that are uh doing things and i and i think despite that everyone watching in some respect is being like, oh, well, that'll never happen to me. Right. And, um, and I've heard you speak before about how like it's, it's people from all walks of life that are susceptible to this. And, and it got me thinking down this line of like, you know, the powers of persuasion and propaganda and advertisement are really, we're like swimming in them and they're everywhere. And, uh, whether they want us to, or their intentions to like to have behavioral changes or, uh, conformity or buying a product or a certain lifestyle. Um, I mean, do you notice any, um, because part of what strikes me about maybe the parallels between capitalism and persuasion or behavioral change methodologies that are really the same elements that like make people susceptible to cults, um, is kind of how people like Werner Earhart came out of a salesman background or like, um, uh, uh, not just Werner, but um, uh, L. Ron Hubbard, I think, was was like in a sales background to some instance as well. So I wonder if no, there he, was a, he was a sci-fi writer. He was a sci-fi writer. Um, I'm I'm thinking of somebody else, and I guess, but um, but I, you know, it, it struck me recently. I've started reading the 
thanks to research and all this stuff has got me interested in the biography of Werner um, or Jack Rosenberg. <laughs> yeah, a, a, that was his given name. Yeah. Yeah, man. So I just, I don't know, man, is there, do you think there are like parallels between capitalism and, and, and these things that, uh, that, that assuage us to, to buy into cults or that make us susceptible to cults? Like, is there a, uh, is there a reason why, um, it, it, like the entrepreneurial aspect of Werner as well, you know, how he created this sort of renewable uh, series of classes that he ultimately took from uh, Scientology, just like the way Keith Rainier kind of stole this sort of large uh, group awareness training format. And, and all these are sort of entrepreneurial venture capitalist sort of things that these guys are doing that turn into cults. Uh, maybe the favorability of religions being tax exempt draw. Uh, these cult leaders into situations that are inherently sort of i just maybe i'm maybe i'm uh, asking too long of a question at this point but i just i do you notice any parallels between capitalism and maybe the things that that assuage folks to join cults um well, well in a very broad sense i mean look we all are persuaded by advertising political negative ads uh uh, celebrity endorsements. I mean, you know, when was the last time you bought a product or you or you paid attention to a product because some celebrity you liked said, "Hey, I like this product, and I'm right. I'm, I'm going to do it." Or you were influenced by a commercial where they showed somebody in a doctor's garb with a stethoscope around his neck or her neck, and they said, "You know, for your health, you really should take this supplement." You know, right. so we're all influenced by advertising and we're also influenced by what uh, by the what I would call the prince, the, the core principles of influence, which are in a book by Robert Cialdini called Influence. And one of those principles is we all kind of respect authority in different right. ways. So like if if someone is dressed up like a doctor and they do a commercial, we're going to listen to them more than if they were wearing a tennis outfit. Uh, if if someone uh, poses in front of a row of American flags at a political rally, we're going to see that as authority. And then there's the authority suit, the black suit, the red tie that denotes authority or a uniformed individual projects authority. So we're, we're susceptible to that. We're also susceptible to social proof, which means that we look around us to get a sense of what we should do. And we we go, and now we go online and we see how many people like us, how many people like our Facebook post, you know, uh, how many people are following us on Twitter. And, and this is this is influencing us about how we feel about ourselves. So in a broad sense, the 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 advertising, the merchandising and and all of the social media platforms are a broader look at how we are all influenced every day. But when you are in a destructive cult that becomes focused and distilled sure. and then yes. like a laser, they're targeting you. So it's not like they're just selling you on a product or a brand. They're selling you on surrendering your life to an absolute authoritarian leader that claims to have all of the answers. It's, it's, it's very condensed in that sense. And then once you do surrender yourself, uh, then you basically 
subordinate your life to this leader and this leader's uh, demands, this leader's uh, guidelines. And that's how these leaders become rich and powerful is because they have a following of people that have surrendered themselves essentially to their authority and will do whatever they want. Uh, Werner Erhard is a very rich guy because of landmark education, which is basically large group awareness training is Werner Erhard's philosophy being sold as a, a panacea, a cure-all. And Erhard, like other large group awareness training gurus, uh, basically borrowed some stuff from Scientology, borrowed some stuff from a German philosopher named Heidegger, right. uh, threw in a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and then he came up with this intense seminar over a weekend called The Forum, where he would download his philosophy and say, this will solve all of your problems. Well, it didn't solve Werner's problems. I mean, he went right. through a really ugly divorce. His kids didn't like him. I mean, he, he had a pretty failed, in many ways, personal life, despite his philosophy and his so-called epiphany about the meaning of life. But that's what he's selling. He's selling a kind of... Uh, uh, it, this will cure everything philosophy. And if you accept my philosophy, it will take care of your personal problems, your business problems, you name it, it'll take care of it. And of course, that's very appealing because we all want somebody to come up to us and say, hey, I can take care of all your problems. Uh, and the yeah. world does seem kind of overwhelming and people are looking for answers. And now we go online to get those answers. And what I want people to know is that there are predators online that are waiting for you. Beware. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, that's all very good points, man. I could listen to you talk about this stuff forever. You know, I, I think that there's a certain amount of uh, people in our society that we consider to be fully radicalized at this point. And, and radicalization uh, results from, say, desperation, uh, results from no other options, and, and and it also largely results out of people not being able to explain reality to themselves. Um, and maybe that's the appeal of conspiratorial thinking is the you know a very easy answer and a quick way to explain things that are more nuanced and uh, more complicated. Um, so I wonder with the um, the way that QAnon has gone mainstream, it's almost I think it's been like internationalized at this point. Um, I wonder if you could, uh, if you would agree with me that maybe there's some underlying root causes uh, within American society, which is causing this sort of wellspring of uh, QAnon or or radicalization. Um, because I because I think it's one thing to like uh, to 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 exist within something that maybe isn't a destructive cult, something that is an insular community, something that um, that encourages its members to remain insular, but doesn't necessarily drive the group to destructive causes, you know, versus something like QAnon, which is just, uh, has evolved to this point to where we've seen violence take place. Uh, well, I'm old enough to remember when there were three main networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, and of course there was public television. Right. And we all got our news from those sources and there was no talk radio and people talked to each other. There was no social media, there was no internet. And so the net result was that as a society, we were kind of more 
together. Right. And we we saw ourselves as a, a cooperative society more. Now people can hunker down in a in in their own little bunker or bubble online, and they can get their news from very selective sources, and they can uh, occupy this bubble with other people who reinforce them. And there is a there is the ability to become radicalized and isolated through that process. And I've seen people that that are close to me become radicalized uh, to some extent mm. and 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 when you talk to them they they say well you know where do you get your news from right. well i get my news from associated press i get my news from reuters i i you know get my news through my google news feed well you need to be more discriminating than that rick you need to just sure. click on these sources and I, and so this is the beginning of what can become radicalization. And what we've seen is that people, uh, for example, that are disappointed with even as, as biased as Fox or MSNBC may be, that they go even further. And they go further to the left or they go further to the right. And they say, well, you know, that's not far enough for me. And so they become even more isolated and, and then they embrace conspiracy theories, which are in part alluded to through their news outlets. And right. it's, a, it's like a trail of breadcrumbs leading them into the abyss, or as they say, down the rabbit hole. And, and then people become socially isolated. They become cut off. And what I would say to people is, give it a break. <laughs> give it a break. Get off, off of your social media and get offline long enough to reflect and think for yourself. And also, I'm going to say something that some people would say is sacrilege. What's wrong with listening or watching Fox and also watching MSNBC, doing CNN, and then maybe, uh, you know, listening to Mark Levin for a while? You sure. know, you, you, can, you can mix your media sources and and hear the point the counterpoint the rebuttal and then come to your own conclusions based on many different perspectives and stop relying on only one source uh to define everything and that's the beginning of of what i would say is that that journey to radicalization uh, and keep in mind that's that's we saw this with al-qaeda and ISIS radicalizing people online and recruiting them. And now we're seeing it with domestic terrorists. Right. You know, I the case of Ashley Babbitt really fascinates me. Um, and not that she's in any way, uh, uh, you know, remarkable. Or I, I just, what I think is that she seems like your average person who had a, a pool cleaning business, right? And she uh, ended up dying in the Capitol, wrapped in a Trump flag. And, and I... Part of me thinks, okay, so this woman lived 14 years in the military, and that's got to be some sort of really terrible algorithmic bubble she lived in, right? Um, so even if she lives in that algorithmic bubble, she uh, is, a, is a staunch Republican. What is that extra thing that like took her from this small business owner, Trump supporter Republican, over to believing in the QAnon line of like, you know, satanic Democrats drinking adrenochrome. Uh, like th there's got to be something else in that leap from her algorithmic bubble to 
believing in a satanic cabal of pedophiles uh, that are the Democrats. You know what I'm saying? Like that extra little bit that took her there. And I don't know what that is. But I don't think it's a leap. I think it's a journey and it's composed of many steps and many, uh, you could even say baby steps initially. And that people that, that I work with, that I get out of extreme radical groups, uh, that their journey was uh, very gradual, and and it and then they became immersed, and then they became embedded. And I suspect that uh, mm. Babbitt, like many of the people that I've dealt with, that she became gradually more and more involved until she basically lost her way, and she became isolated to the extent that she was no longer getting any accurate feedback or any alternative frame of reference or perspective mm. and she was completely embedded in the bubble and that's what happens but it isn't something that suddenly happens overnight in most cases it's something that comes on gradually and 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 quite frankly this makes it very difficult to uh, make a choice to to say at some point i won't drink the kool-aid Right. You know, because they're they're giving it to you in teaspoons, you know, and the Kool-Aid is an allusion to the flavor aid drink mixed at Jonestown with cyanide, where Jim Jones said, "Okay, everybody drink the punch, which you you are going to die. And in that isolated compound in Guyana, they had no alternatives. All they heard was the voice of Jim Jones bombing through their head on their public address system. And he had conditioned them over a period of time and isolated them so that they said, well, yeah, I will drink the punch. And of course, those that refused to were shot or forced to ingest it. There were over 200 children that were murdered. But that journey that ended in Jonestown was a long journey. It was a process. And and Jim Jones... uh, did it to these people on a gradual basis. And many of these people that were at Jonestown had been involved for years. Some of them had been raised within the people's temple from childhood. Some of them were drug addicts that had uh, quit drugs through the rehabilitation program of people's temple. So it's, it's a gradual process where people are not able to say, okay, this is a clear-cut choice between fantasy and reality. I'm going to choose reality. No, it just kind of creeps up on you, and and you don't really see it. And I think in most cases, that's by design, because the people that recruit people into these uh, extremist groups know that if people were making an informed choice from the very beginning on the totality of where the group or the movement wants to take you, that they'd say, hell no, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole. I've got a family. I've got a career. I've got a business. I don't want to give my life to this. So they don't give you a clear cut choice and they gradually pull you in bit by bit by bit. And uh, that's part of the game. That's the trick. Yeah. I think that's, that's probably, yeah. I mean, that it is pernicious, that it's bit by bit, that it's a process and it's not ever a leap. And if it ever was a leap, of course, you would say no to it. Um, I think that's part of what makes this entire thing uh, so unsettling and pernicious and, and awful um, is that 
you know, this sort of thing happens over time, little by little. Um, and I mean, we're, we're living in a society where like the pandemic sort of overnight happened little by little until it, you know, in this exponential sort of way, maybe we could think of it similarly as we kind of woke up one day with like, uh, and, and I guess to, to, there was a metaphor about like, if, if leaves are falling on a lake and twice as many leaves fall every day, when is the, when is the lake completely covered? Well, it's covered the day before when a half of the lake is covered and it's only half at that point. And then when it doubles again, the whole lake is covered. So human beings on the whole are really bad at, at predicting or seeing where exponential processes uh, conclude at, or when they, when it gets bad enough to where we can't handle it as just, you know, as the whole pandemic is basically that way. So I, I think it's important what you're saying is that these breadcrumbs ultimately lead to a place that you don't realize you're there once you're already there you know um so and and let's keep in mind that the pandemic has isolated people people are under quarantine they're not right socially interacting and it's also created an enormous amount of anxiety and fear and so this is all part of what people uh that run destructive cults and extremist groups this is what they feed on because in coercive persuasion, there are three stages. Edgar, Edgar Schein wrote the book, Coercive Persuasion. He taught at MIT. And the first phase is unfreezing, or I'd call it breaking people down. Right. The second is changing them after you've broken them down. And then the third is refreezing, or what I would call locking them in. And so, so if you have people that are already going through a lot of anxiety and they're socially isolated, they're at home, they're worried, they're thinking about the pandemic, they're thinking about their career, their job, uh, their bills, and they're already close to the breaking point. So you, as a cult guru or a, a movement recruiter, a radicalizer, you have that much less to push to get right. them to break. And so then they're closer to the breaking point. And once they're broken, they're thinking, please, somebody help me, yeah. help me. Yeah. And at that point, it's like you're treading water in the deep end of the swimming pool. And all of a sudden you see a life preserver, you don't, or you're in open sea and there's a life preserver. <laughs> right. You don't think what's on the other end of that rope. Right, you right. just think, I need to be saved. And you grab oh onto the life preserver and you get pulled onto a boat that's going somewhere that you didn't want to go, that is not, is not in your best interest. But because of the process of coercive persuasion, you have been broken and put into a panic and you've embraced something that you would otherwise not even give the time of day to. And I think that's why they isolate people in these large group awareness training events. Uh, you know, they're all isolated over a long weekend and the trainer then uh, basically hammers on them. And, and that's what, uh, by the way, James Arthur Ray, who ended up doing some time in jail because at one of his intensive seminars, three people died. Wow. And they were very educated, good, you know, head on their shoulders, people with careers and everything. And uh, what, Ray, what Ray did was he had what he called a sweat lodge, where he told everybody they needed to sit and sweat together and they needed to bring themselves to the point of death 
to prove their courage, to prove uh, and validate who they were. And if you ran out of that sweat lodge, you were a loser, you were a traitor, you were, a, 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 you were nothing. And Ray sat there pushing them, pushing them. And they sat there in distress. Many of them were hospitalized. Three of them died. Ray ended up in jail. But that's the power of getting people in an isolated situation like that where you can manipulate them and leverage their frailties, their, 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 you know, the things that in their life that are painful. And you then use that as a means of cracking them open and then manipulating them and taking them over. And that's what these large group awareness seminar selling gurus do. And that's what people do that radicalize people online. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of crazy because I, I, I've had a few years since I, I, you know, I went to a landmark forum thing about 10 years ago. And, uh, and since then, uh, after exploring and, and trying to, to decipher some of that stuff, I understand that it's a large part. It's a lot of Heidegger, as you mentioned before. It's a lot of Buddhism. It's like an amalgam of philosophy. And there's there's part of it that was a grift that was like a self-recruiting instrument of it um, that was always trying to get you to bring in other people. That's why they have you bring other people to, like, to their graduations and stuff like that. Um, but I want to say that like, you know, I've found other people out in the world that like at some point we discover this about ourselves. I'm like, oh, you went to Landmark at some point. And they're like, oh yeah, I went to Landmark too, da, 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 right? And it just so happens that since we're, we're talking about landmark man um i know a friend of mine uh had gone through landmark and we discovered this about ourselves uh, about ourselves and then now his wife is just now going to take the forum and so this stuff kind of weaves in and out of your life it draws attention back to it at a later point and i think that maybe i mean obviously now i'm not trying to sign up for classes or anything to that end um but i wonder if i hadn't have done that investigation would this have come back into my life at a certain point and then maybe i would have become re-involved with that uh by doing some of their i don't know answering one of their emails or uh, attending another one of their classes um but in this age of you know covid and zoom video conferencing and remote working and stuff it seems landmark is now uh administering the forum remotely over video conferencing so it's i i wonder with this sort of large group awareness uh format that they are traditionally known for i wonder if their efficacy of uh of engagement and recruitment and and all of that uh how that's affected by uh you know doing everything over zoom and, and i wonder if uh i mean it, i don't know i just i just bring that up because it's funny how it, i couldn't imagine it being anywhere as effective as this person that's yelling at you at the front of this room in person you know there's a bit of it that is like uh, psychologically brutal, like it's uh, it's a violent sort of deconstruction of a person right in front of you, uh, as you've said, where you, they they prey on the things in these people's life that hurt them, and they break them down, and they say things to them uh, very plainly that you would never in a million years uh, say to anyone in public. Uh, and, and so it, it's, uh, it's fascinating to sort of have this perspective on it now, and also quite unsettling as I speak to you, uh, Rick, to, to understand that I went through some of this and this was part of my life and, and I understand the tricks of the trade. Um, so it, it might understand that when you deprogram someone, you're basically showing them the tricks that these very same cults, right, that they did to them. This is how they got your attention. This is how they kept your attention. This is how they froze you in place. This is how they broke you down. 
Um, can I ask like how or what the difference is between uh, your successes with the client and your failures? Like, like what makes a successful client um, that deprograms successfully versus someone that uh, may, may fall short of that? Well, it's simple. At the end of the intervention, uh, they say, I am going to leave the group or I am going to take a break from the group while I explore this further. That's often mm -hmm. uh, what some people will do to kind of, you know, save face to some extent and say, well, I'm really going to just dump this group, but I'll just say I'm taking a break. And then mm -hmm. later they will say, I've decided I'm done. Other people that, that I fail with, in the first day, maybe day and a half, they just split. They mm. look at the family and say, look, I'm done. This is ridiculous. I'm not going to sit through it. I don't appreciate it. Uh, too bad if you don't like uh, the group I'm in. I think it's great. And this guy's a jerk. And I'm leaving. And, and Or at the end, they say, thank you for your time. But I, I still feel that this group is giving me what I need, and I'm going to continue with it. Uh, mm. they, there may be many reasons for that. They may feel so invested in the group that they can't let it go. They may have uh, someone in the group that is very close to them, a romantic interest that they don't want to let go of. They may, may, may think it could destroy their marriage if they're married through the group. Mm -hmm. Or they may work for the group in such a way that they feel this is my career, uh, I can't leave. I think that's what keeps a lot of people in is what Benjamin Zablocki, a sociologist, called exit costs. Right. I mean, you, you count the cost, you know, how much is it going to cost me if I leave this group? And the longer people are in, the higher the exit costs typically are. And the shorter period of time they're in, the less. And by the way, the Cult Education Institute at culteducation.com has probably one of the largest, if not the largest, archive on controversial groups and movements online. It's a virtual library with hundreds of subsections and a really big one on Landmark Education, Werner Earhart, and the forum. So big, in fact, <laughs> that Werner Earhart sued me for a million bucks. Wow. Uh, two years ago, he said, you know, I he's got to stop. And so I got threatening letters from his lawyer and then I got sued for a million bucks. And fortunately, I was lucky enough to have pro bono legal help from one of the biggest law firms in New Jersey, Lowenstein Sandler and the attorney mm. for Skolnick and Michael Norwick, who was working at Lowenstein at that time. And they basically made it clear to Landmark that they were not going to beat me down through legal fees and that I was represented for free. So good luck with that. That strategy wow. would fail for Earhart. And then uh, they aggressively went after Landmark uh, in discovery. Uh, you know, we want to see these documents. We want to see yeah, how many yeah. complaints you've had. How many people have you settled with for personal injuries out of court? How many times have you threatened people like this with litigation? And when the judge said the discovery would not be sealed, a federal judge in New Jersey, and that it would be visible to the public, and Landmark realized this was a losing hand, and yes. they actually dismissed their own lawsuit. So wow. if people want to see all the juicy information of that. It's all organized at culteducation.com. 
And, you know, I'll give Werner Earhart some credit here. Uh, when, he knows when, when, when to hold and when to fold. And uh, Keith Ranieri, who sued me for 14 years, did not know when to fold. And so he just kept suing, suing, suing everybody. And eventually it was his undoing. And he's now doing 120 years uh, in, in jail, in prison and for racketeering, uh, sex trafficking, tax fraud, etc. But if he had not sued people and harassed people, it's possible he would have continued to get away with it. Uh, there were there were people that he just pissed off right. and who eventually just said, I'm going for it. And, and in particular, the actor Catherine Oxenberg, right. who was well known for her role as Fallon in Dynasty. And despite her uh, rather feminine, demure presence, you know, I've met with mm-hmm. Catherine and she she is a very ladylike person. And uh, but she's as tough as a tank. And when when Ranieri made it a choice between between walking away and losing her daughter or going to war, Catherine just uh, pulled the hatch down on her tank and hit the gears forward and went after him. And I remember her saying to me, he will not get away with my daughter. And uh, she did get her daughter out, India Oxenberg. And she brought the entire cult of Nexium down to the ground. She destroyed it. Uh, and I will say that that I had a bit of a part in that. And I will say that Tony Natale, uh, his girlfriend from more than 20 years ago, also who he harassed inde- indefinitely, it seems. Only prison stopped him from harassing her. He could never stand anybody just saying, uh, I'm done with you. He had to go after people. He's very vindictive, like many cult leaders. And so Natalie and Catherine Oxenberg and I, and of course, Sarah Edmondson, who was the woman who displayed the scar of Keith Ranieri on her body to the New York Times. And, And Sarah had been an ardent supporter of Keith Ranieri. And then he created a group called called DOS within Nexium that was composed only of women, and he had an actual doctor uh, use a cauterizing iron. This doctor was one of his followers, and she would engrave his initials on the pelvis of each woman to be inducted into DOS. So they tortured, uh, it, it, it seems, more than 100 women before he was stopped. And uh, there were many very intelligent people that were reeled in by Nexium. And again, their their indoctrination, their their breaking down, their their changing, this process of coercive persuasion went on for years. And Ranieri entrapped uh, the actress Alison Mack uh, for a while, the actress uh, Kristen Kruk. The Seagram's uh, liquor heiresses, uh, Claire and Sarah Bronfman, who reportedly gave him over $100 billion. I mean, this was a guy who could just manipulate people psychologically and emotionally. Uh, this was his skill. He would say to his member, his followers, I, I'm a genius. I have the highest IQ in the world, right. which was nonsense. It was a lie. 
Uh, he was a struggling student at, at Rensselaer Polytechnic. I think he had a 2.5 grade average. But, but when it came to manipulation, he was a savant. He could take someone and just manipulate them. He could gaslight them, uh, which is a way of describing uh, deliberately staged things that, uh, that appear to be spontaneous but are really just scripted by the leader in order to, to work you over and manipulate you. And it took him years to work on some of these women and some of these followers, but he did it. And it was, uh, he got away with so much for so long until Catherine Oxenberg said, enough, I'm done, give me my daughter. And he said, no, I'm not giving you your daughter. In fact, I'm gonna brand your daughter. And at that point, Catherine Oxenberg said, we are at war. Mm-hmm. And and she just kept going until he was destroyed. You know, for listeners that haven't seen the documentary Seduced, I think it's out on Stars right now. Um, it's incredibly unsettling, but it's all true about Catherine Oxenberg and her daughter India and Keith Raniere and the entire Nexium DOS um, sex trafficking uh, case that that happened. I mean, it's really. It's really fascinating and incredible and 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 sad and and awful. And um, you know, but in watching that, I kept be, I kept having these sort of parallels to like uh to to part of what I saw within landmark education stuff, man. And I and I kept coming back to that just because that's my that's my part of my lived experience. Um but the whole setting up of classes to take and then sort of graduating to different, uh, you know, statuses within the organization. Um, you know, it really, it, it also kind of reminded me of some awful sales gigs that I've had in the past too, where like, you, sh- <laughs> you know, you show up and you have the guy that's like making everyone clap and sing and, and you're dressed in business casual and they make you cheerlead and then run out the door while you do door to door salesmen or door to door sales of like different things. And I, uh, you know, this, this whole culture of, uh, I guess the the sort of self help culture when it merges with sales and capitalism is so slimy to me, man. And how you can kind of move and slither back and forth between, oh no, we're just a class that helps you, uh, I don't know, develop your executive success uh, into a more cultish monetary grift thing. It's so awful, man. And I, I it, what what kills me is that part of me. Uh, internally still wants to sort of defend some of the methodology of landmark at times, you know, like I think, Oh, well, the way that they psychologically broke me down and then built me back up has really served me. I mean, that's a really crazy thing to say about something uh, that is a large group awareness training. Like you said, that people have had psychotic breaks from. Um, And I, and I wonder in your, in your work in deprogramming folks, have you had any deprogramming cases that came out of landmark at all? Oh yeah. You know, I write about one case in my book, an orthopedic surgeon, a medical doctor who was completely caught up in Landmark. His wife did not go along with it, and she saw that it might destroy his career because people at at where where he would, you know, uh, do surgery, part of his practice, the people that he was associated with were saying, can you just stop talking about Landmark? (laughs) <laughs> Can you stop talking right. about the form? And the way the doctor had been uh, recruited was by his son from his first marriage, who he said he had neglected, 
The son had had some serious problems with drugs, substance abuse, and he felt like, well, I wasn't there for you. And then the son said, but dad, if you would come to Landmark Education and we can do the forum together, dad, and this will be our bonding. This will be, you know, uh, this will be a turning point for us. And the father went along with it. And I've got to say that nothing is 100% bad. I mean, if these uh, groups called cults or these large group awareness training uh, organizations like Landmark, if if they were 100% bad, nobody would ever go and they would never succeed. So sure. there, it, there are good nuggets. I mean, I, I talk to people who've done the forum and they will tell me, I got this out of the forum. I got that out of the forum. Fair enough. Um, you talked about your deepest pain. You opened up to other people. You said, this is who I am. And in and Landmark facilitated part of that. And, and you gained insight and, and meaning, and it helped you. Okay, but alt- ultimately, where do they want to take you? They want you to keep doing course after course after course. Sure. They don't want you to stop with just the forum. They want you to recruit your family and friends. And ultimately, the money that is generated by Landmark, I mean, we're talking about millions and millions and millions of dollars a year. Is there enough study, uh, excuse me, is there enough money generated by Landmark to fund a peer-reviewed scientific study based on the objective results of their training? You betcha. They got enough money to do that kind of research. Have they ever done it? No. What do they do? Surveys, which are subjective. They say, did you think that Landmark was a wonderful thing? Was it good for you? Yeah, it was great. Do you feel that you're going to be a better person as a result of Landmark? Yeah. Uh, and, and, And so people will subjectively talk about how they feel about Landmark which I have no problem with. I know that Landmark can make people feel things. They're, they're very adept at manipulating people's feelings and their perception. But my, my question is, can you look at a Landmark graduate one year out, two years out, five years out, with a control group of people compared to that group that have not done Landmark, and can you see a, a lowered need for counseling? a higher grade point average, greater income, uh, lower divorce rate, a decrease of medication for anxiety. Can you measure objectively the results of Landmark? And whenever, whenever I talk to Landmark graduates and people that are really involved with Landmark about this, they're, they become very dismissive. Mm-hmm. You know, they say, well, you know, you can't understand something like Landmark, unless you experience it. And Rick, you haven't experienced it. And I went through this whole trip with Landmark at one point where various people were saying, look, Rick, we're going to pay for you to do Landmark. <laughs> and so, so I said, okay, all right. And so then Landmark said, well, you know, you can't really do the whole thing. And in oh. fact, what we'll do is we'll give you a guided tour through Landmark in New York, and you can get kind of a feel for what we're doing, but we're not going to actually put you in and and take you through the whole forum. 
And I said, well, I don't want to do that because that's distorted. That's selective. I want to do the whole thing. And then various people kept saying, yeah, let Rick do the whole thing. We'll pay for him. We, you know, because these people are, they're true believers. And so, so then uh, Landmark said, well, okay, maybe we'll let him do it in San Francisco. Oh, wow. Okay, we'll, we'll let him do it in San Francisco. Uh, and and then they said, but you know, you have to sign certain releases and paperwork regarding if you have a personal injury, you will agree to submit to binding arbitration for any personal injury claim. And I said, oh, no way. I'm not yeah. going to sign sign away any of my civil rights. Why would I do that if I if I attended a marriage seminar with a counseling group or some kind of educational retreat? They would not expect me to sign a release like that. Why are you telling me that I have to sign that release? Isn't it because you have been sued for personal injuries and maybe paid a lot of money in settlements or whatever? Sure. And uh, so then when I said I wouldn't sign the paperwork, they said, oh, you can't do the form. And that was the oh, end wow. of that. But, wow. but you know what? I don't think that you have to smoke cigarettes for 10 years to realize that it might be bad based on scientific research. Or you have to uh, drive a, a tire that that has a bad report through consumer report that it, it tends to blow up. You know, you don't right. have to prove it. You can you can rely on research and information that's available on uh, through through published books through through various studies and and the this the, there's been a, not, a lot of negative uh, studies done about landmark and there have been lawsuits there have been problems and i think you can make an an informed decision not to do landmark on that basis yeah i mean it's it's really wild um because you know, in, in kind of watching some of the documentary, right, I, I could completely understand where India was saying things like, uh, you know, you don't know how you'll respond until you're in those situations. And uh, even over the course of like two or three days, um, how criticism wasn't received well, and the rest of the group sort of ostracized you if you did speak up. And, and so I could see that sort of that powerful influence of just a small group. And, and what kept coming back to me as well was that it seems like, I mean, obviously the Nexium stuff happened over the course of years, but I saw a crazy stuff happen over the matter of, of a few hours or a few days within Landmark, you know, um, because when you get that many people together, you can really create a lot of really feel good energy in one room, you know? And uh, so and and some of these elements of like sleep deprivation or um uh, or just sort of like sensory inundation like you've got so much going on you can't you know tell what's you just have so much you're so busy uh you know that seemed to be kind of part of what landmark was doing as well in that um you know you'd have a 16 hour day and then they'd send you home with like 4 to 5 hours of homework and then you'd come back the next day and you'd you know, you'd be exhausted, but they'd start you out from 8 a.m. under sleep exhaustion um, with very heavy things straightforwardly, you know. Uh, so so I could see how a lot of this behavior we're speaking to, the matter that it's a process and not just a leap that happens at any point, um, we're all susceptible to it. And and it's really crazy to, to, to think of how, like, they're highly educated people uh, 
amongst the people like that, that it was a doctor who did the branding, you know, it was, um, with the doctors and lawyers and, and filmmakers and people who were, uh, who bought into this stuff. Um, so, uh, before we go, I guess, before we wrap up, um, do you have any last words for anyone who like, I mean, I know it's a difficult thing to ask about family members who are affected by this sort of thing, but any last words of, of, uh, how people we can support or develop a dialogue with these folks or uh, anything to that end, Rick? Well, I think you have to develop coping strategies. I write about this in my book, which is to be a good listener, to be compassionate, to be caring, to not be uh, critical, confrontational, argumentative, uh, and just be there for them. And and the group the group may encourage them to feel like nobody really cares about you except us. Nobody really understands you except us. And because of how we have been trained together, we've learned together, et cetera. But if you, as a family member, a friend, somebody make it clear that I am always going to be, be here for you. And so you have a safety net. Uh, you have not burned your bridges. And there is somebody that will, that will listen to you and, and who cares about you. And by the way, my concern and caring about you is not conditional upon you agreeing with me and doing what I want you to do. I just care about you because you're my brother, you're my, my spouse, you're my parent, you're my old friend who I really care about. And if you can get that across to them and be a good listener, then maybe you'll be in place when they do have a crisis. And, and something doesn't really go quite the right way. And then in that confusion of why isn't this working for me anymore? Or why is this, uh, this apparent lie evident in this group that contradicts what they have been telling me? If, if you're part of their life at that point, then you can listen to that. And then maybe when that opening occurs, you can offer uh, some insight. Uh, to the extent that you share books that you've read, research papers that you've looked at, or maybe a website that you visited that had some information relative to their to their crisis, to their confusion, that might be helpful. Thanks so much for being with us here today. I, you know, I I really enjoyed our conversation. It was fascinating. Uh, it's wild to get to talk to the guy that's I was just watching on television a little while ago too. Um, but I, you know, in reading some of your book, man, like that first opening uh, stuff talking about the, the the surgeon that was in her car with the wine bottle and the and the note. Um, I didn't realize that was someone that you had worked with, and I, I thought it was just exemplative of some of the things that have gone down with like psychotic breaks from landmarks. So that's it's fascinating, and I really appreciate your time. And and thank you so much, Rick. Thank you, Jules.
Someday 